1: a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Every so often, you just sort of left with a loss of words, which you can tell right now. Peter Flack is a substantial author. Peter Flack is someone who has hunted Africa a lot. Lots of countries, lots of animals, lots of experiences. So you just Google Peter Flack, you'll find all of the books that he has written. He's a consummate hunter, a consummate conservationist, a consummate South African. Uses proper in his terminology, in his vocabulary. I was fortunate to connect with Peter and. Fortunate to have him on the podcast. Uh, a listener reached out uh, through Instagram and said, "Hey, you know who you should have on is Peter Flack." And I hate to admit it, but I'm embarrassed that we haven't had him on earlier than this. Um, Peter Flack is is old school hunter conservationist
0: who is just amazing.
2: They do all the arranging. And then they send me something that says join, and then I do that.
1: Well, I'm so glad I sent you a link that said join. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, man. I'm so glad I checked back in because I just sent, I guess, as I said, I just sent you an email that said, um, where I'm the sorry hell? I missed you. Where where the the, I, I was actually a little bit more polite than where the hell are you, Peter Flack.
2: Oh, okay, well, I would have understood where the hell are you.
1: <laughs> well, uh, Peter Flack. I'm so grateful, man, to have you on the Blood Origins podcast. I can't see you. I can't see your lovely face, oh. but you can see mine. Yes, I can. Um, and that's okay. It, uh, le- as long as you can see me smiling at you and making faces, then oh, do that's you, do fine.
2: You, do, do you, but you should be able to see me. Hang on. There, there you
1: are. Look at you.
2: Yeah.
1: Look at you. Yeah. Um, well, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. I apologize uh, for... Um, for not, for not having you on earlier, even, you know, you chastised me in an email saying, you know, you've had 260 episodes, Robbie, and I, you still haven't had Peter Flack on. And so 261, here we are.
2: <laughs> no, it's, you know, my, my wife thinks it's very funny because anything which sort of she feels, you know, um, pats my or slaps my ego back into place is, is good for me.
1: Well, I can certainly do that today, and so you can walk around with a chip on your shoulder or an inflated ego inflated head, you have to walk through doors sideways. I can do that today for you
2: no, I prefer not to i'm um, um I think well anyway um Peter,
1: you know you know when, when we had a conversation the other day and I, I just was i really was i really number one enjoyed our our phone call and um I know that this podcast is going to probably run down a couple of rabbit holes, which is the point of the podcast. Um, did you get uh, two things? Did you get the DVD that Eileen sent you? I did not get the DVD, but she sent me something better. She sent me a link. Yeah. So to, to where I could purchase the downloadable copy of the documentary. And I've gone ahead and I've done that.
2: Oh, wow. And well, I. To pay for it. Uh, Oh, no, I paid. I paid $30. No problems. Oh, no. Well, um, <laughs> please, um, I've got a U.S. bank account. Just email me your bank details and I'll send it back to you. I must not have made it clear to her that you were to get it for free.
1: Oh, no. She was, she was like, oh, here's a customer. We need a customer oh, in the door. No,
2: it's my fault. <laughs> Just email I've... me your bank account details. You know, $30, is a, it's a nice stake. How about we do this? How about we do this? How about I give you a link
1: to Blood Origins and you can donate that back to Blood Origins?
2: Oh, okay. Super. No problem. That's an easy win
1: there. But yeah, I'm excited. I'm down. I'm going to. I got the download link sitting in my email inbox for a, your South African documentary and I'm excited to watch it.
2: And I uh, finished reading your granddad's book yesterday. Amazing. And I realized I'd never read it before.
0: It was a stage in my
2: life when, you know, I was quite busy and I would just subscribe and buy these books and um, some I read and some I didn't. And uh, Well, again, it's just
1: fortuitous, right? When I just, and again, I told you in this phone call, I I don't know very many people who have a connection to my grandfather. And not that you have one, but the fact that on that phone call you recognized my last name somehow, somewhere, and you're like, didn't your grandfather write a book? Mm. And then you 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 disappeared from the phone for five minutes. I was like, where the hell's this guy gone? And lost Wi-Fi connection, whatnot. And you just wandered through your house to your oh. your reading room oh, see and there, you pulled yeah. the book off the shelf. Yeah.
2: Yeah. He was more a shooter than a hunter, though. He his, his love correct. was birds.
1: Birds and fishing. Yeah. Fishing was his was his number one love. Like I remember somebody telling me. On the on the concession that he helped Werner von Albensleben on in Safari Landia on the on the Save River, he would more often be caught fishing than hunting.
2: But you know, I know many professional hunters for whom fishing is their first love. Many. Mm-hmm. There is mm-hmm. something I think about the stillness and the quiet and the peace and being on your own that, that appeals to them because their life is so full of, you know strange people coming to use them to kill things
1: yeah yeah well peter flack for those that may not know who you are um what you do why i even have you on the podcast maybe you can't answer the last one i can ask the last one but the first two questions can you give people
2: a little bit of insight into who you are oh robbie um i'm 74 years old i was born in cape town um i started off my working career as a lawyer, um, a corporate lawyer. Um, I graduated from law schools uh, in Cape Town and the UK, and uh, I also passed the bar exam in New York, which nearly killed me. Um, And they tell me I was the first South African to be admitted in both jurisdictions and to practice in both. And then I left law and went into business and, had a vertical learning curve on um, how to fix broken companies because the first company I joined was bankrupt. Um, But that really doesn't explain why I'm a lawyer. Um, I'm of mixed descent. My mother's uh, from Dutch ancestry and my dad was English. So her home language was Afrikaans. My dad was English. And when I was nine, she packed me off to farming relatives um, to improve my Afrikaans. And they didn't know what to do with this scruffy little blonde-haired hooligan of nine. So they taught me to shoot and gave me one of the farm workers to look after me. And when I was nine, totally by accident, I shot uh, Far Rebuck and um, my um, farm worker, because he hadn't been there made up the story how I'd stalked it and shot it. And it turned out to be actually a very nice ram. And the farming folks thought this was amazing because it is probably the top Southern African trophy. And most of them had never been able to to shoot one.
0: Mm-hmm. And they
2: trotted me around to sort of neighboring farms. And I quite liked the, the sort of, you know, um, local fame that it brought me sure sure and i never told anybody the truth in fact the first person i told the truth and only after i'd been married to her for about six years was my wife (laughs) but it set me on a path you know i went back to school um and i joined the shooting club and we had a fantastic master and so our school made up most of the provincial shooting teams and most of my fellow members on the team were from the Karoo, they were Afrikaans farming boys, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because our school, Saks, is the oldest school in the country. Um, I'm the third member generation of my family to attend it. Mm -hmm. And in time I went back home with them on holiday and in the June holiday, it's a three week holiday that coincided with the time when most people in the Karoo, um, which is a semi-arid plateau region in South Africa, would cull their surplus game. And, you know, it's a big social event in South Africa. You invite the uh, head of the local police station, the head of the church, the postmaster, uh, your bank manager, those people you owe social (laughs) favors to, and they all come (laughs) shooting your farm. And everybody must go home with a springbok. The problem is that it also is accompanied by quite a lot of drinking, and many of these people can't shoot. So us young guys would, one, do a lot of the culling, because that's really what it was. I, I thought right. it was hunting, but it wasn't. It was just culling. Right. And we would also clean up the wounded animals. And um, then one or two of us started to get invited to farms where we didn't know really know the farmer. And so most June, July vacs, that's what I ended up doing. And then as I got older, I... Um, I started to ask if um, I didn't want any payment. I never got any payment if I could hunt the odd animal on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by then, you know, the bacillus was in my veins. Mm-hmm. and I couldn't find an antibiotic to cure it, nor did I want to. And then I so slowly started to hunt the different species of plains game. Um, in and around the country, I, I did uh, a trip up to Namibia for Gemsbak, one to Zimbabwe for uh, Zebra. Um, and in my late 20s, I was part of a group of guys, and we used to go every year and, and hunt for meat, because you know, now they separate trophy hunting from meat, sure, hunting, sure. which is a nonsense. It's the same thing. Right, you know, because as meat hunters, we like to shoot big animals because you got more meat for your buck. Peter Flack, you, I say exactly the same thing. People say, "Well, you're just a
1: trophy hunter." I say, "Well, you're a trophy hunter too because you didn't you didn't shoot the first thing that walked out. You yeah. were selective in what you decided to take." Yeah. So what makes you different than me?
2: Yeah, No, it's a nonsense. It's an animal extremist uh, club with which they have found a way to beat us with, but it's absolute nonsense because even. That sort of died in the wool true collectors and trophy hunters. The meat gets eaten by them, by their staff, by the local people. None of it goes to waste. Right. Um, and then in my late twenties, this our group decided it was now time to uh, stretch our wings. And one of our group, he's he's dead now, I knew of a package in the South African Lowveld where a game lodge was offering four buffaloes. And that just changed our lives. You know, um, we had to beg, borrow and steal money to afford the hunt, but we did it. And each of us eventually got a buffalo. <laughs> in, in my case, it was a very young, soft bossed, small. Oh kid. my gosh. And had I known then what I know now, I would never have pulled the trigger. But, you know, sure, with a, sure. a Ph who was sort of like, you know, my hero in a different Mm -hmm. state, you know, saying, shoot, I I just shot it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But that put me on a path where for 10 years I was just obsessed with buffalo and all my available time and spare cash was devoted to to hunting them. I I thought I would never, ever get tired of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it's funny. Um, I don't know if you've ever listened to, Gray Thornton, who's the president I have. of the he's wild. actually
1: been he's been on this podcast before.
2: Uh, before me,
1: <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We got to. Fi- I'm gonna
2: have you back again
1: before he does. Come on, okay.
2: Oh, okay, okay. Uh, but Gray talks about the six stages of a hunter, and right. um, you know, in this tenure phase, I, I, I started to hunt other things that could stand on you and chew you. Uh, You know, elephant, rhino, leopard, lion. Um, And then reached a stage, I think, where I thought, you know, I I kind of knew my way around hunting, and I'd started to hunt quite widely outside of South Africa. But uh, I then read a book, and I thought it was by J.A. Hunter, but I've gone back to the book, and I can't find the reference. But it was by one of those big East African Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He wrote about hunting an animal called bongo for 30 years in Kenya without getting one. And what really struck me about the story was firstly that a man as expert as he could hunt anything for that period of time and not get one. And secondly, I was embarrassed to say I hadn't the faintest idea what a bongo was.
1: Mm.
2: And I set about finding it and that opened an entire new world to me. And that consumed the next 20 odd years of my life as I hunted what Ionides called the rarities of Africa, mm-hmm. not so much because they are few in number, but because people so rarely hunt them. Peter, that, is there a
1: reason why you stuck with Africa did it, that your wings didn't spread beyond the African continent?
2: It's such a good question. You know, I, I did, I started a hunt in Scotland and I went and hunted bear in Alaska. And I suddenly realized I was in danger of becoming a dilettante, you know, hopping off here, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Whereas I am an African, you Mm -hmm. know, Um, I'm born, bred, my family goes back over 200 years in Cape Town. And I thought, I'm crazy. I need to find out more about this continent on which I live Mm -hmm. and which I love, and the incredible wildlife habitat and wildlife that you find. And I thought, let me just try and um, get see if I could get to grips with it. And you know, that's what's taken me to nineteen African countries. And um, I hope. Is there an
1: African country that you haven't hunted in Oh that maybe. can be hunted?
2: Oh, um, yes, I haven't hunted much in North Africa. You know, I've okay. hunted in Tunisia. Um, I've tried to hunt in Algeria and, and Morocco in the latter case for many years, but just never been able to mm. like nail it down. You know, They just opened
1: make... up um, the first oddad yes. wild
2: free roaming
1: oddad in, I think it's Morocco.
2: Yes, I read that story. I think it was in SCI's Safari Magazine. I hunted ODAD in, in Chad in the Sahara Desert. Um, mm that was an incredible experience with that. Oh, oh I, I could imagine. Conic PH, Alain Le Foll, Oh, uh, man. Must be the greatest modern day professional hunter, along with Rudy Lubin, I guess.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
2: But yeah, so, you know, that set me down the spiral horn uh, route, you know. Bongo, and then you more- just
1: decided to become an, you just decided because I hunt so much, I need to write as much about it. Because you're an author, come on. Let's let's. At the end of the day, that's your love, right? Hunting is your first love. Dare I
2: say, writing is your second love. No, that's 100 percent right. And you know that the similarity is so great, because it's difficult to explain sometimes to people why you love them, either of them. And the real answer for me is that it some satisfies something very deep inside me, that makes me truly joyful and happy. Um. Let me ask this question because I want to dive deep a little bit because
1: you're the kind of guy that I can explore this with. Why does, and, and I'm sure you've heard this before, so it's not going to be a surprise to you.
2: Why does killing an animal, Peter, bring you joy? Oh, it's not the killing that brings me joy. The killing is merely the conclusion. You know, for me, the hunt is everything up until the time you pull the trigger. That's merely the conclusion. And for me, the conclusion was necessary if I and my family wanted to eat venison. And for us, venison is and was the most healthy form of protein that there is. You know, low in sodium, no fat, very low in cholesterol. And I wanted to take responsibility from a very early age for what my family ate, Mm -hmm. both for their benefit and because it gave me huge satisfaction as a young man to provide for my family. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
2: Really? But the thing is, you don't, you're not going to, I hear
1: your answer, but then you alert a Lord Derby Eland essentially in Cameroon or, or Bongo in the democratic Republic of Congo.
2: That, the, that meat, was, the meat isn't
1: the part of that, right? No,
2: hundred percent right. I think that was, um, for me more of a challenge, more of, a a wish to obtain the experience, to walk in the footsteps of the men I'd read so much about, to visit places I'd never been, mm-hmm. uh, the the whole adventure and challenge of pitting myself against uh, an animal where I often came home without success. Mm-hmm. You know, my first uh, I hunted Lord Derby's Eland three times before I was successful. Uh, Mountain in Yala uh, twice. Mm-hmm. Um, I hunted elephant for forty two days before I squeezed the trigger. wow so the, these uh, were things that I found incredibly challenging. and when I was lucky enough to meet the challenge, it satisfied something inside me.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and i I think personally, you know, Robbie, we've been on this earth for roughly 200,000 years in our current form. But, you know, agriculture was only invented about 10,000 years ago, you know, between the Tigris and the Euphrates. So really for 95% of the time we've been on Earth, we have hunted to provide for and protect our families. And for some of us, that is ingrained in our genetic makeup. It's part of my culture. my Afrikaans' farming culture have hunted f- since time immemorial mm-hmm. and and that's been ingrained in me. Well, that's um, why we
1: call the, call what we do blood origins. It's where you come from. yes, it's that thing that is that is your origins, whether that is physical or genetic.
2: well, you, you know if 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 it is so for animals, and I've had many discussions with geneticists, and I've heard one of them say, That within three to four generations of moving a group of wildlife from one wildlife habitat to a totally different one, they start to show variations in their uh, genetic makeup, in their DNA. Really?
1: In their genetics or their phenotype? uh,
2: I don't know enough. I'm not technically enough uh, qualified to say which one of those. But yeah. I thought you were saying in their genetic makeup, but okay. it could be me just um, using those words to explain it to myself.
1: Mm. No, yeah. genetics, I think, is difficult. Genetics takes a lot. From, a, from my biological perspective, genetics is something that takes a long time. But phenotypic variability... Phenotypic variability certainly expresses itself in three to four generations, i.e., a darker color, yes, uh, a, a, a sort of a morphological change, right? Yes. A longer nose, a, a, a different yes. color coat.
2: Yeah. So you know, if animals react so quickly and uh, visibly to to changes uh, in their habitat, you think what, think how ingrained hunting in us is for, or for certainly for some of us. And in addition to that, it's part of my cultural makeup. You know, that's how we all grew up. When we, when my uncle produced a uh, springbok, which was actually sent by a freight train from the Karoo to our station in Kenilworth, none of us thought it was strange going up to the station and picking up the buck and carrying it home. Because mm-hmm. that was, you know, he, he went and culled every year.
1: Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, it's a funny, you know, it's, and the reason I ask the question is because, you know, we live and breathe on social media. Okay. And it's almost like to me, I say social media is the battleground for today's, uh, for changing perceptions around hunting, essentially. Social media is that battleground. And if you're not in the war, you're just letting, you know, the, the anti hunters sort of run after you. And we all know if you're in the game long enough, there's certain characters on certain platforms that do the rounds, okay? And I don't block them because I want that interaction, even though I know it's probably not even worth my time and probably not worth the, the effort that I'm pushing through my thumbs onto the glass screen that I'm typing this message out on. But this morning specifically, we dropped a video um, about Dan Cabela and his story of like, just him as a hunter last week. And in that, we, we, we build little snippets around it. And one of those snippets is questions that, uh, it's a very simple question, and I've I sort of roundabout way I've asked you already, which is, why do you hunt? And there's a very good response, right? We've never had, out of the 70 people that I've interviewed thus far, I've never had someone say, because I love to kill things. Okay? And so, one of the anti-hunters commented on this post this, this morning. And her comment was, not a word about conservation. When I asked the question, why do you hunt? Her response was, not a word about conservation. Now I know for sure it's not about conservation, but all about the powers hunters feel when killing an animal. How pathetic. I'll, I'll, I don't want to – I'd like to get your response because I'll, I'll read my response to her in that moment.
2: Um, but I love to talk yeah, the, truth. Uh, the answer is very simple. You know, we owned a game ranch for 20 years. If I wanted, I would walk out and I could kill scores of animals um, every day. Right. Um, so so why, why didn't I you? do that? Exactly. Um, yeah. Because it's not about the killing. Um, yes. Um, in, in, in May, I would go out um, on a vehicle in the dark moon with a light, with my staff. And we would shoot six animals. The light would go on. They'd freeze. Shoot them in the head. They're stone dead. Bleed them. Take the insides out. Take it back to our butchery. That was not hunting for me. That was just culling and 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 killing for meat. Mm-hmm. Um. So I mean, it's a it's a, her her response is 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 silly really. Is do people hunt for
1: conservation though? Is I guess the question underneath what she's asking, and I know the answer because I like to speak. We like to speak truth Yeah, we're not, We don't like to banter around the thing. But
2: Peter, people don't go hunting for conservation. No, conservation is the results of hunting. Uh, it's the, it's the, the fruit of hunting. Mm-hmm. You know, we know so, so well in South Africa. You know, Robbie, I don't know if you know, but in the 1960s, we'd already lost all the bluebuck and all the quagga. They were extinct. Mm-hmm. Four other species were following hot on their heels, and that was the white rhino. I mean, Dr. Ian Player told me that there were twenty-eight left in, mm-hmm. the, in in southern Africa, and there were no and there were no game ranches in South Africa. In fact, the, there were it in the, in the early seventies, there were maybe three, mainly down in Natal. There were uh, cattle farms on which there was some game. Um, and Professor Jane Carruthers wrote a book, uh, Wilding the Farm or Farming the Wild. And in her book, she quotes a game survey that was done in the country in 1964, which showed that we were down to a mere 554,000 game animals. Mm-hmm. She repeated that exercise in 2005, and we had 18,7 million Mm-hmm. We also had over 5,000 game ranches, which is now expanded to about 10,000 game ranches.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: those ranches cover some 20 million hectares of land under game in private hands. And that is three times more land than all the national parks and provincial reserves in the country combined. Why was that? What caused this dramatic shift and change? Well, the first answer is that in 1977, Kenya banned hunting to be followed shortly thereafter by Uganda and Tanzania. And that pent-up demand moved south. And suddenly in South Africa, and probably Barsi Martins in Namibia was the first Gosh, dang, to
1: Martins. Uh,
2: run a, a hunt for an overseas professional hunter called Elgin Gates. Yeah,
1: that's right. That's right. Do you and, know that we filmed his son?
2: No. We've no. got
1: Craig Martins filmed, and it's on the shelf right now.
2: Oh, you filmed uh, Barcy Martin's life? I thought you were talking about him.
1: No, Barcy M- no, Martin's son, oh. Craig Martins. Oh,
2: okay. Yeah. No, I've I've not met him. He's a great um, guy. El, Elgin was a very controversial uh, figure, <laughs> um, but a, a very interesting man to me, if you've read his book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, suddenly farmers were being paid more for their sheep and more for their cattle than they were for a kudu or a springbok. And suddenly they started, instead of allowing every man and his dog, like we did as kids, come on the farm and whack these things uh, in June, July to reduce the numbers, he started setting aside land for these animals and offering them to overseas hunters. So the Conservation was the product of that. Because think about this, Robbie, 21 million hectares of land. Okay, yes, think about the game, but think about the birds and the reptiles and the little mm-hmm. predators and all the other things that have come with it. You know, we have kudu in the in the Western Cape for the first time ever.
0: They've mm-hmm. come over
2: the Hottentots Holland Mountains because this checkerboard of game ranches has allowed them to move from one property to the other. Mm-hmm. it's been an incredible success story um, and that is purely the product of hunting the contrast right. can be seen in the study produced by those six Kenyan scientists in September 2016 I think it was uh, a very extensive study in Kenya showing that they had lost that's not my conclusion the scientists showing that they had lost seventy percent, 78% of their planes game since they had stopped hunting in 1977. That's the product of not hunting. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, I'm sure no, I am no, teaching you to no, stop eggs and giving you statistics. You already know.
1: No, no, no. You're essentially saying what I responded back to this lady. My response back to her was, I think you'll find that a lot of people don't hunt for conservation. So you're right. So I like to like say, yeah, you're right. You know, anti-hunter. Yeah, you're right. The consequence of the action certainly is conservation, proven over and over by population recoveries all around the world. But an individual's motivation likely is with something else, as the answer in the video suggests. Some may enjoy killing, but that's a very, very small fraction of a percent of the population. Because let's be honest, if it was all about killing, why would we spend so much time and money to do it? Why not just go down to the local slaughterhouse and volunteer our quote-unquote killing services?
2: No, it's true. I mean, why do you go all the way to flip in Ethiopia, pay for the, the, the animal in advance, and you might not get it, as, uh, as in my case. And you're going after one animal.
0: And mm-hmm. you're, going
2: to take, you're going to set aside two weeks to do that, or in my case, three weeks.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I hunted mountain in Yala for 33 days before I got one. Holy smokes. It tells as much about my expertise as it does about how difficult the animals can be.
1: Jeepers creepers, man. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, one of the things that I want people to to recognize is um is obviously your books, right? And the authors behind the books. And really, the the, the first time I came across your name, and as a, again in our conversation, certainly a, a tie back to my father, who's who's since passed. Um, I just have very fond memories of him sitting in my in my house. And when he would have his cup of tea of a morning or cafezinho in the afternoon, because he was Brazilian, um, he would sit with the big, green, hard-backed African hunter too. And that was written by Ewan Boddington. Mm. And he just went country by country. Mm. And he he was almost like reminiscing,
2: Mm.
1: because he grew up in Mozambique in the 60s as a teenage boy. Tell me about African Hunter 2. Oh. Or just tell us about those two books for those that may not be familiar with
2: what I'm talking about. Um, African Hunter 2 comes a long way. It actually starts in the 1800s, uh, a book written by a British hunter called Philip Kutzwally, who wrote or attempted the first book on uh, every African country where there was hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 1930s, uh, Major Hubert Conway Maiden did the a, a second version, Big Game Hunting. And that book was James Mellon's bedside reading book for many years and guided his, his, his African hunting. James Mellon then wrote African Hunter, a big format black and white book which lived on my desk in my study at home uh, almost permanently, and like your dad in the summer months when I couldn't hunt, was my go-to reading matter. And so I thought, oh, okay. Well, what, what happened? James actually got hold of me. He wrote me a letter and said that he had heard that Maiden had come to South Africa in the Second World War and had a daughter, Susan. And did I think I could find her? And I didn't want to say to him, you know, James, you know, this is a big country. You know, we've got, America, <laughs> but we got 55 million people here. You know, it's 2,000 kilometers end to end.
1: You must know this guy. He lives in Kenya. Yeah. You
2: guys are next door neighbors, right? Yeah. And that's happened to me as well. Um, but I, You know, I was in such awe of James. You know, he was my absolute hero. And this book was so I thought I'd give it a try. And I started with the Cape Town telephone directory. And hey, there was a maiden in it. And within like an hour, I was speaking to his daughter. To oh, my was maiden's daughter. And he had donated his diaries and photographs to the South African archive in Cape Town. So Susan and I, she was quite a bit older than me and suffering from macular degeneration of her eyes, went to the archive, found his diaries, found his pictures. I had copies made and I sent some to James and that started something between the two of us. And I thought that I would do a follow-up book called Southern African Hunter because I didn't know enough to do African Hunter
0: mm-hmm. Two. Mm-hmm.
2: And Then that got picked up by a safari press who'd published my first two books, uh, Heart of an African Hunter and Tales of a Trophy Hunter in Africa. They're both out of print now. And I I set off. And then um, the publisher of Safari Press, Ludo Werfbane, wanted to expand it into… Who is still there today. Ludo
1: is still there today.
2: And remembers my
1: grandfather the first time I met Ludo. Sorry to interject a a side note. Yes. He published his book. Remembers Ludo. And who is the lady? Um, You'll know her name. No
2: Sample. He's production manager. No, no. She's the boss
1: lady like hey, Jackie
2: Neufeld.
1: Jackie Neufeld and nice. Jackie
2: remembered my grandfather
1: very well too and was like, "Oh, he was he was the most charismatic individual but such a stubborn old bastard." is <laughs> what she said to me. <laughs> and uh she sent me all of she went down into the vault they called and they photocopied all of like the the um all of the communications back and forth between him and her. Mm. And uh, it's fascinating. Sorry to, to diet. No, no, to, that's, it's...
2: that's the stuff of life. Yeah. So, anyway, he then brought in Craig and I think it took us about six years to put the book together, but the part of this that I love most was that James wrote the preface to the book and then mm-hmm. came through to the SCI convention to sign copies of the book for one day when it was released and it was hugely popular and we signed books, the three of us all day. And then that night he came to dinner and I remember him telling me that this was the first time in his life where he had worked for an entire day, (laughs) (laughs) because as you know, he inherited substantial amounts of money. His family were the founders of Mellon Bank in, mm-hmm. in in the States when he was very young, and that's what set him on the hunting path. He, he knew he didn't have to work, so what did he really want to do? Right. So, yeah, from 18 until, I think, 42, that's what he did. So, Peter, 74,
1: I know the answer to this, but for the edification of the audience, do you still hunt
2: today? No, I haven't, I haven't hunted or touched a rifle in four years, Robbie. Why? Um, you, you know, it's
1: you were such you're such an accomplished hunter. You've done pretty much everything on the African continent that a man can can do. Why have you hung it up?
2: <clears throat> you know, I remember as a young boy. Um, my family were um, passionate rugby players. Uh, I'm the black sheep of the family in that I never played <laughs> for. Uh, our country or for our province, I only paid for our university. So we had a lot of international rugby players passing through our home and our family were friends with many of them. And we had a famous South African rugby centre called John Gainsford. And, you know, he, he kept on playing maybe longer than he should have. And I remember one game in the wet and the mud, when the only person with clean shorts on was him and, and the Crowd. Um, it was terrible. They booed him. And it stuck there with me, you know, that you don't want to hang on doing something for too long. And mm. in my case, I was concerned that um, I might start wounding the game that I loved or not being fit enough to follow it up immediately and put it out of its misery immediately. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want something like that to tarnish what I I think of um, with great Mm -hmm. fondness. Mm -hmm. And I I could feel that my eyesight was deteriorating. Um, While I could still walk, you know, eight, nine, ten hours a day, if I could walk at my own pace. uh, I thought, let me, you've got to stop sometime. So sure. you can either have that imposed on you, or you can choose a time. And I chose to choose. Mm. And I chose um, a Lord Derby's Eland hunt in Cameroon with a good friend of mine and my son uh, as a way to stop. And I'll always cherish that because it was a fantastic hunt. I We stalked one lone Eland bull for nine days. Jeez. Um, which is a tribute to the incredible skills and tenacity of of our tracking team and just huge dollops of luck, to be honest, at the end. Yeah, yeah. And it it finished so well for me. You know, the, the bull was sleeping under a tree at the top of a rocky gully, and, you know, I, I killed him so cleanly. He didn't move. Mm. And I just – I'll always cherish that, and, and I'm glad that I did that. Um but, you know, it's it's a little bit like um, uh, you read amputees. You know, after a while, they've lost an arm, but they can still feel their fingers. Mm-hmm. So hunting is still a bit like that for me because I am a hunter. I'll, I'll always be a hunter. And I'm still fascinated by all things hunting. But I've just drawn a line under the practical aspects of it.
1: Was there any, uh, you know, the practical aspects, obviously, of African hunting, I can see, but... Did you not, you know, you you spend your time between England and the, the Pacific Northwest. Uh, Pacific Northwest has some phenomenal duck hunting, um, has some phenomenal upland bird hunting. You know, things that are more, you know, dare I say a little bit more tame than a, a nine-day Lord Derby Eland hunt in Cameroon that could still tickle your, that, that, those fingers, essentially.
2: Um, you know, I hate to confess, but I have never been a wing shooter. I, I loved hunting so much. And people have always said to me, why not trout fishing or deep sea yeah. big game fishing? And the answer was simple, that whatever discretionary time I had, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, what would I rather do now? You know, wing shooting, fishing, or, you know, uh, a proper hunt? There was no proper choice, hunt. <laughs> <a> choice, <laughs> no choice in the matter for <laughs> me. It's such a it's such an
1: African, it's such a South African term, African term. Proper, mm. proper hunt. And people mm. like we say it all. I say it all the time. It's it's baked into my vocabulary. It's still baked into your vocabulary. Yes. That it's it's such a great term. It's you know it's a proper meal, a proper mm. buffalo, a proper mm. hunt.
2: Yes. Nothing nothing better than a proper buffalo and a proper hunt. Hmm?
1: Mm. that's what i hear i have yet to do one i Mm. look forward to doing one one day i want to i want to kill a buffalo but i want to do it in there's two places i want to do it and they're both in mozambique Mm. number one is in the maromeo yes because i'm a wetland ecologist and Mm. the maromeo is a wetland paradise that Mm. you know is a delta of the Zambezi Mm. river and the buffalo population has you know come back and, and is thriving which is two great stories that marry into why you would do a hunter buffalo there. The other place, it may take some time. I think it'll be possible in my lifetime, but I'd love to kill a buffalo where my grandfather killed a buffalo on the survey.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, And I know that there's two Katahdas there, four and five that are currently being sort of looked at and and reestablished. And maybe there's a potential one
2: day. Fantastic, fantastic idea to aim at something like
1: that. Peter, I'll I'll finish off the podcast with a couple of sort of, um, thought provoking questions. I know you've, you haven't been in the hunting arena for four years, um, but you've obviously kept your finger on the pulse of things. What, What do you feel like is the future of hunting, um, I know we, we we briefly touched on this a little bit in our phone call, but, you know, the state of hunting, maybe not the future of hunting, but the state of hunting today.
2: Oh, Robbie, it's such a vexed topic, you know. I can only really talk about Africa. And just to give you some idea, you know, in James Mellon's book, African Hunter, which came out in the 1970s, I think, my, as my memory serves me, he referred to 32 countries in Africa where you can hunt. Mm. When we did African Hunter 2 and then followed it up with uh, two books on safari hunting, I think we were down to 19. Uh, lately, the, the the numbers about, I'm talking sub-Saharan Africa, by the way, it's yep. 11. And of those 11, you including countries like Ghana, which is, just such a small, small uh, hunting destination. You know, I think if they get a dozen hunters a year, it's probably a lot. And they're all really after just royal antelope.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and other countries like Benin, uh, again, very small. And, and we've lost a lot of countries, Chad, uh, uh, Burkina Faso. Um, and, you know, even in South Africa, which uh, at one stage, certainly in 2008, for example, we had 16,394 overseas hunters. And they're the people that really spend the money and fund the conservation. Mm-hmm. Um, we've recovered a little bit because we we dropped down to just over 6,000 at one stage. But we're still roughly at, at just a half.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and you can say, Why? Um, it's a combination of factors if you look at countries like Republic of Congo or Cameroon uh, it, it's so difficult to actually get into these countries because corruption is so rife mm-hmm. you know the the incompetence with which they deal with their natural resources is so great um, and so wasteful that many places where, uh, I've hunted with great success and great joy in the past. Oh, now it just lines on a map. You know, there's nothing there. There's there's no infrastructure. There's no wildlife. They're just people and cattle and, and the like. Um, so I think the areas where you can hunt uh, are reduced. The ability to get to areas has become much more difficult, including Mozambique. You know, my last trip to Mozambique, I was arrested at Baira Airport on my way out uh, because I was exporting armor-piercing ammunition. (laughs) The armor-piercing ammunition were 300-grain Norma solids for my three-seven-five, still in their uh, factory box. Uh, You know, this was just uh, another form of extortion. Mm -hmm. But those kind of things you know, um, take its toll. You know, mm-hmm. when I left the Republic of Congo last time, I had a, a policeman jabbing me in the chest with an AK 47 with his finger on the trigger, screaming at me to give him money. Now that's not something that's uh, destined to encourage you to return. Yeah. And yeah. there's more and more of these things and individually it's not, uh, um, you can say, it's it's not a game changer. But when you add them all together, it becomes a disincentive. Because we hunters can go anywhere. You can hunt in so many places around the world. You can spend your dollars or rands or pounds in many different places. This is something that's joyful. This is a passion for us. This is part of who we are. You, you, you want to enjoy what you're doing and, and not having it soured by finding no animals or the areas poached out or there's you know uh you are tormented by corruption or incompetence or violence in going to visit these places right it's it's, it's sad but in, in in many cases we in africa have an ability like no other to kill the geese that lay the golden eggs
1: mm. Mm. No, it's, you know, you're right. I think there is, I would, I would err maybe on the more sort of optimistic, I was about to say (laughs) pessimistic, optimistic side of things and that there are glimmers of hope. I think South Africa post-COVID has seen quite a resurgence in the number of hunters that have come back. And with good reason.
2: You know, Namibia, Botswana, South Africa, Zimbabwe and Mozambique, I still think are excellent destinations. And Mozambique probably is the one that has improved the most over mm-hmm. the, the immediate past. And people like Mark Haldane in Kutada 11 has done just the most incredible job. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've read his recent book or not his recent book, but the book Bringing Back the Lions by an American writer. I think his name is Eustace about the I, I know
1: about the story, right? We've had, as I said, Dan Cabela was on the Blood Origins episode last okay. week and the 24 Lions Project. And, yes.
2: Yeah. Uh, I mean, so there are wonderful stories like that. And then there are bodies like African Parks who are playing an enormous role in creating these hearts and lungs of wildlife and wildlife habitat around Africa. Mm-hmm. With, with mm-hmm. great success, and for example, mm-hmm. up in the northeast corner of CAR, uh, the resuscitation of a, of a fantastic sort of heart and lung for Lord Derby's Eland, um, but those are not the norm. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, um, Peter, again, I apologise for uh-huh. not having you on. Um, earlier than 260, whatever this may be. Um, and I'm glad that our paths have crossed. I really am. I, again, from our phone call conversation, um, it, it stirred not only like, you know, not just, you know, to, to, to patch your ego a little bit more, a little bit of awe from my perspective that I'm able to connect with someone like you, but also a little bit of, you know, reminiscing because of my father and, yeah. and the books. And then you right. talked about my grandfather and, you know, again, very few people know about a little bit of me and you, you knew a little bit about me and, and you've read the, the, his book. Now my grandfather's book, my last Kambaku in the last week since we, we chatted in. Um, yeah, I've got that lineage. I've got that thing in my blood that is him. Yeah. And I may not be a writer yeah. like he was, or like you are, but I express, I guess, the creativity elsewhere, which is through this kind of medium yeah, yeah. and the, the content that we produce.
2: It's so important what you do, Robbie. You know, otherwise we just leave the playing field open for the animal extremists to spread their nonsense and lies and rubbish and uh, without any form of opposition. And I think it's incredibly important what you do. We do too little of it as hun- hunters, mm-hmm. you know, we are, I often think, are our worst enemies. Mm-hmm. So, you know, bow to your elbow, Robbie. Uh, I think it's fantastic. And don't well, forget you... to send me the link so I can make that donation.
1: <laughs> yes, sir. I will certainly do that. Hey, we're a non nonprofit. We'll take money where we can get it, right? Good. Good. <laughs> um, well, Nick, look, Peter, um, when next year in the States, when you come back to the States, please let me know. Um, I'd love to see if our paths can cross physically I'd uh, love to shake your hand, um, oh, have great. a cup of coffee or maybe something stronger. <laughs> um, so, I'll bring you a good Cabernet. Yes, sir. I'd love that.
2: <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Pleasure, Robbie. Thank you for inviting me. Well, that's it for today.
1: I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.